Welcome to True Paranormal, the podcast with your host, Leo Rizzuti. Every week we will explore such topics as ghosts, demons, poltergeist, haunted history, time shifts, cryptozoology, and other aspects of the paranormal through listener-submitted accounts, documentary studies, and interviews with the investigators that dedicate their lives to searching for proof of the unknown. So get a fresh cup of coffee, dim the lights, relax, and get ready for a short visit to the realm of the true paranormal. Hi guys, Leo Rizzuti here. Welcome to another episode of True Paranormal, the podcast. I would like to start off this show by apologizing if my voice sounds particularly Elmer Fuddish or kind of thick and lethargic. I am knee-deep in the throes of a not insignificant head and chest cold, or it could be creeping death. I'm not really sure. They kind of feel the same way, don't they? You'll know, though, if I make it through the show, that means it's probably just a cold. If the sound stops halfway through the show, that means it was creeping death and I am lying on the floor assuming room temperature. Hopefully we get the former and not the latter. But on the plus side, if we do get the latter and I die in the middle of the show, you'll have a great story to tell all your buddies. So you got that to look forward to, which is nice. This week we're going to be uh, going in a little different direction. I've actually had some requests from some friends of mine to do a show on urban legends, which I've been fascinated with since I was a very young child. And we're going to look at three of the most famous ones that make up the fabric of American folklore. And the neat thing about these urban legends is that they are not just campfire ghost stories like you would imagine. These are actually things that multiple, multiple, multiple people have reported on, have had eyewitnesses to, have investigated, and they have some validity to them, which is kind of bizarre if you think about the subject matter. But let's get on with the show. I hope you guys enjoy it. I know I'm going to enjoy sharing it with you. The first of the urban legends that we're going to have a look at is one of the most popular ones in the fabric of American folklore, and that is the stories of vanishing hitchhikers. And a vanishing hitchhiker is a very, very old phenomenon. It is seemingly modern because a lot of the stories that we hear these days involve cars, but there have been stories of vanishing passengers and vanishing hitchhikers going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to the time when people were driving stagecoaches and they would have passengers vanish, or carriages, or wagons, or even individual horses. The stories are almost always the same. It's almost always at night. There's almost always a young lady who's walking by the side of the road who is picked up, and sometimes it's raining, sometimes it's not, but the story usually goes that the person is given directions to wherever the hitchhiker is wanting to go, and before they get to that destination, the person disappears. So let's have a look at a couple of the more famous and popular stories involving this. The phenomenon of hitchhikers that had been vanishing in the U.S. and throughout the world has been going on for many years till this very day. What could be the reason for this strange happening? Actually, there might be quite a few reasons for these occurrences. It could be an illusion seen by the driver, or perhaps the driver was maybe even drunk. Other theories abound from extraterrestrial beings, an actual ghost, and even spirits that neared his or her place of rest 
usually near a cemetery. Are those stories simply urban legends with no basis of truth, or is there more to the enigma than meets the eye? Could any of them have a basis in truth? What if a somewhat true incident to a vanishing hitchhiker like one of the many that have actually happened somewhere and then was told and retold to the point that it lost many of the elements of truth, if any? As the story spread from one locale to another, it was embraced by people all over the country and became a part of their local lore. Time and time again there have been sober witnesses to a ghost of a beautiful young girl who had been appearing along the road near Greensboro, North Carolina since 1923. She stood in the gloom of the coming dusk next to Highway 70 underpass in a white evening gown and waved frantically for someone to stop and pick her up. Those hapless motorists who stopped were introduced to a young and pretty young girl who says her name is Lydia and she always asks them to please take her to an address in High Point. She always related to them that she has spent the evening at a dance in Raleigh and was anxious to get home. She said that her date had gotten mad when she stopped his advances and had made her get out and walk. She didn't say much on the way. When drivers approached the house, the girl always vanished from their car, never opening the door and getting out. Just simply she was there one minute and gone the next. Those drivers who went to inquire at the house were always told the same thing, that Lydia died in a car wreck many years ago, coming home from a high school dance in Raleigh and perishing at the U.S. Highway 70 underpass. A similar story was told about a stretch of Highway 48 in South Carolina. Concerned motorists who claimed that they had seen a vanishing hitchhiker in the form of a young, beautiful girl carrying a suitcase walking along the road, signaling with her thumb. They stopped and offered her a ride, and she told the driver that she was going to visit her sick mother in Columbia. As she entered the vehicle, she gave the address of her destination, but throughout the journey, she remained silent, not uttering one word. Then suddenly, at the outskirts of the city, she vanished from the auto, nor was her suitcase found. One motorist who picked her up went to the address and described the girl to a man who lived there. He said that it was his sister and that she was killed by a hit-and-run driver while walking to visit their sick mother. This happened to several independent witnesses over a three-year period in the 1950s. One hitchhiker story from Arkansas involves a girl in a formal dress standing by the side of the road who was picked up by two college boys on their way to the annual prom. One of the youths noticed that she was shivering from the cold night air and he gave her his coat to wear. The girl was silent throughout the trip, only pointing out the house where she said she lived. When they had stopped, they found that the girl had vanished. The youth forgot to get his coat back and when he and his companion returned to the house to retrieve the garment, a woman dressed in black met them and said that the girl was her daughter, but that she was dead and buried. At a later period, they went to view the grave, and there, draped across the tombstone, was the young man's coat. Another type of legend pertaining to the vanishing hitchhiker comes from a tale haunting the Green Mountain Cemetery south of Belleville in Illinois. As the story goes, you can pick up a ghostly rider if one were to drive around the cemetery three times on a stormy night with the door to the car opened. The legend goes on to say that on the third trip, a ghostly woman will appear, soaking wet from the rain, and will appear to be all dressed in black in the passenger seat. By the time one has finished making the third round, the spirit will have vanished, but to one's horror, a pool of water on the passenger seat will remain. Now these are all stories that we have all grown up with, and 
to a certain extent, you tell them and there's always kind of a smirk in the background of, yeah, I'm sure that really happened. But let me tell you, I've got a friend of mine named Steve in Texas. And Steve and I have been friends for a little over 15 years. And if he is lying to me about this, it is the very first time that he's ever lied about anything, as far as I know. He is a very down-to-earth person. He's really not interested in the paranormal at all. Uh, The only reason that he related this story to me was because he found out that I have an interest in the paranormal, and he thought it was kind of a neat story. He tells me that he was driving through the western part of Texas one evening, and he was coming into the outskirts of a small town, and he said there was a young lady there by the side of the road, and she just looked, you know, normal. It was not anything ethereal to her. She was dressed in regular clothes. You couldn't see through her or anything like that. Just a regular young lady. And so Steve pulled up by her and asked her if she needed a ride. And she said, sure. He asked her where she was headed. And she said, just to the other side of town. And he assumed that he was going to get directions from her as they went along. So they drove through this little town for about five or 10 minutes. And then Steve looked in his rearview mirror And the young lady was not there. Now, Steve says that he knows for a fact that she got in because he heard the door slam. He saw her in his rearview mirror get into the car, sit down. He said that he did not stop any time between the time that he picked her up and the time that he looked in his rearview mirror, at which point, of course, she had disappeared. So there was really no possibility for her to have gotten out of the car unless she jumped out going at 30, 35 miles an hour, which I suppose is possible, but you would kind of notice that, I would think. So that, to me, leads a little bit of credence to it. I don't know if that helps you guys to believe in these stories, but I know that it does with me, because if my buddy tells me that it happened to him, I'm going to believe him every single time. Next, let's look at one of the most popular urban legends out there, and that is the legend of the Jersey Devil. For close to 300 years now, people in New Jersey have told tales of a mythical beast that stalks the Pine Barrens and terrorizes local residents, known as the Jersey Devil. The recurring nature of this story begs a few questions. Why have New Jerseyans embraced this legend so steadfastly and above all others? Is there actually some sort of creature roaming the Pine Barrens in southern New Jersey, and if so, what in God's name is it? Legend has it that in 1735, a Pines resident known as Mother Leeds found herself pregnant for the 13th time. Now, Mother Leeds was not living a wealthy lifestyle by any means. Her husband was a drunkard who made few efforts to provide for his wife and their 12 children. Reaching the point of absolute exasperation upon learning of her 13th child, she raised her hands to the heavens and proclaimed, Let this one be a devil. Mother Leeds went into labor a few months later on a tumultuously stormy night, no longer mindful of the curse she had uttered previously regarding her unborn child. Her children and husband huddled together in one room of their Leeds Point home, while local midwives gathered to deliver the baby in another. By all accounts, the birth went routinely, and the 13th Leeds child was a seemingly normal baby boy. Within minutes, however, Mother Leeds' unholy wish of months before began to come to fruition. The baby started to change and transformed right before her very eyes. Within moments, it transformed from a beautiful newborn baby into a hideous creature 
unlike anything the world had ever seen. The wailing infant began crowing at an incredible rate. It sprouted horns from the top of its head and talon-like claws tore through the tips of its fingers. Leathery bat-like wings unfurled from its back and hair and feathers sprouted all over the child's body. Its eyes began glowing bright red as they grew larger in the monster's gnarled and snarling face. The creature savagely attacked its own mother, killing her, then turning its attention to the rest of the horrified onlookers who witnessed its temptuous transformation. It flew at them, clawing and biting, voicing unearthly shrieks the entire time. It tore the midwives limb from limb, maiming some and killing others. The monster then knocked down the door to the next room where its own father and siblings cowered in fear and attacked them all, killing as many as it could. Those who survived to tell the tale then watched in horror as the rotten beast sprinted to the chimney and flew up it, destroying it on the way and leaving a pile of rubble in its wake. The creature then made good on its escape into the darkness and desolation of the Pine Barrens where it has lived ever since. To this day, the creature, known varyingly as the Leeds Devil and the Jersey Devil, claims the pines as its own and terrorizes any who are unfortunate enough to encounter it. In the 18th and 19th century, the Jersey Devil was spotted sporadically throughout the Pine Barrens region, frightening local residents and any of those brave enough to traverse the vast undeveloped expanses of New Jersey's southern reaches. Unearthly whales were often reported emanating from the dark forests and swampy bogs, and the slaughter of domesticated animals would invariably be attributed to the Phantom of the Pines. Over the years, the legend of the Leeds Devil grew, occasionally even overstepping the boundaries of its rural Pine Barrens haunt to terrorize local towns and cities. Most infamous of these incidents occurred during the week of January 16th through the 23rd, 1909. Early in the week, reports started emerging from all across the Delaware Valley that strange tracks were being found in the snow. The mysterious footprints went over and under fences, through fields and backyards, and across the rooftops of houses. They were even reported in large cities of Camden and Philadelphia. Panic immediately began to spread, and posses formed in more than one town. Fear and intrigue grew even greater when it was reported that bloodhounds refused to follow the unidentified creature's trail in Hamilton. Schools closed or suffered low attendance throughout lower New Jersey and in Philadelphia. Mills in the Pine Barrens were forced to close when workers refused to leave their home and travel through the woods to get to their jobs. Eyewitnesses spotted the beast in Camden and in Bristol, Pennsylvania, and in both cities police fired on it but did not manage to bring it down. A few days later, it reappeared in Camden, attacking a local meeting at a social club and then flying away. Earlier that day, it had appeared in Haddon Heights, terrorizing a trolley car full of passengers before flying away. Witnesses claimed that it looked like a large, flying kangaroo. Another trolley car full of people saw it in Burlington when it scurried across the tracks in front of their car. In West Collingswood, it appeared on the roof of a house and was described as an ostrich-like creature. Firemen turned their hose upon it, but it attacked them and then flew away. The entire week, people reported that their livestock, particularly their chickens, were being slaughtered. This was most widespread in the towns of Bridgeton and Millville. The creature reappeared later in the week in Camden, where a local woman found the beast attempting to eat her dog. She hit it with a broomstick and it flew away. 
while there has not been another week to match the frequency, fervor, and intensity of the January 1909 rampage, numerous sightings of the Jersey Devil have continued to be reported to this day. The tale of the Devil has spread beyond the Pine Barrens and has been embraced by all of New Jersey, even to the point where it has been largely commercialized. There are still many, however, who believe that the Jersey Devil is a very real, very dangerous creature. There has been a constant stream of reports over the years of devil encounters. Most often, people report finding strange, unidentifiable tracks in the sandy soil in desolate areas in the Pine Barrens. Some report that they are the footprints of a strange bird. Others say that they closely resemble hoofprints, although whatever walks on it has just two legs. There have even been a substantial amount of people that report describing the tracks as being cloven, a well-cited description of the feet slash hooves of an even more famous devil, Satan. While less frequent, there are still occasional reports of people who see more than just tracks and manage to catch a glimpse of the Jersey Devil himself. He is most commonly described as having the body of a kangaroo, the head of a dog, the face of a horse, large leathery wings, antlers similar to those of a deer, a forked reptilian tail, and intimidating claws. While some New Jerseyans embrace their devil as nothing more than a quaint figment of our collective imagination, others see it as a very real creature and a threat to their safety. Still others who have sworn they did not believe in the existence of the Jersey Devil had had their minds changed after spending just one moonlit night in the Pine Barrens. There, where a ghostly mist drifts across the cedar swamps and the unearthly cry of some unseen creature can be heard piercing the stillness of the dark forest, few disbelievers can be found. Whether it's deep in the Pine Barrens or deep in our collective unconscious, one thing is certain. The devil still lurks in New Jersey, and most likely always will. So there you go, the story of the Jersey Devil. The thing that I find fascinating about this is that there are so many people that are absolutely convinced that this is a real creature, that this is not a myth, that this is not something that is just people's imagination. And to the point where they have actually gathered together in groups and go out searching for Jersey Devils, just like we have people who go out looking for Bigfoot and things like that. Not that I would put the two in the same realm, but they're both cryptids. We don't really know what is out there, what's not out there. And I'm not going to sit here and chastise the beliefs of a group of people. The Jersey Devil is something that has been not only reported for, obviously, centuries, but also has been chronicled by police departments, by school teachers, by people who, they're not the kind of people who just make things up. And anytime you have an incident where the police are shooting at a creature, you better believe that there's going to be questions asked. And if it was just a figment of the imagination, you would know about it. So I got to believe that there is something going on out there. I can't explain what it is, but it is a fascinating tale nonetheless. The last urban legend we're going to be looking at is a request from my buddy Mike. And Mike wants us to have a look at Mothman. 
Now, Mothman is very popular in culture these days, mainly because there was a movie, I believe, starring Richard Gere several years ago called The Mothman Prophecies. And I'm not really sure. I've, I've never seen the movie. I don't know what, if anything, it has to do with the urban legend, except for it has the name Mothman in it. So I'm sure it has something to do with it. But at any rate, the story is fascinating. Let's have a look at that. Late in the evening of November 15, 1966, two young married couples had a very strange encounter as they drove past an abandoned TNT plant near Point Pleasant, West Virginia. The couple spotted two large eyes that were attached to something that was shaped like a man, but bigger, maybe six or seven feet tall and had big wings folded against its back. When the creature moved towards the plant door, the couples panicked and sped away. Moments later, they saw the same creature on a hillside near the road. It spread its wings and rose into the air, following with their car, which by now was traveling at over 100 miles per hour. That bird kept right up with us, said one of the group. They told Deputy Sheriff Millard Halstead that it followed them down Highway 62 and right to the Point Pleasant city limits, and they would not be the only ones to report the creature that night. Another group of four witnesses claimed to see a bird three different times. Another sighting had more bizarre results. At about 10.30 in that same evening, Newell Partridge, a local building contractor who lived in Salem, about 90 miles from Port Pleasant, was watching television when the screen suddenly went dark. He stated that a weird pattern filled the screen and then he heard a loud whining sound from outside that raised in pitch and then ceased. It sounded like a generator winding up, he later stated. Partridge's dog, Bandit, began to howl out on the front porch and Newell went out to see what was going on. When he walked outside, he saw Bandit facing the hay barn about 150 yards from the house. Puzzled, Partridge turned a flashlight in that direction and spotted two red circles that looked like eyes or bicycle reflectors. The moving red orbs were certainly not animals' eyes, he believed, and the sight of them frightened him. Bandit, an experienced hunting dog and protective of his territory, shot off across the yard in pursuit of the glowing eyes. Partridge called for him to stop, but the animal paid no attention. His owner turned and went back into the house for a gun, but was then too scared to go back outside again. He slept that night with his gun propped up next to his bed. The next morning, he realized that Bandit had disappeared. The dog had still not shown up two days later when Partridge read in the newspaper about the sightings in Port Pleasant that night. One statement that he read in the newspaper chilled him to the bone. Roger Scarberry, one member of the group who spotted the strange bird at the TNT plant, said that as they entered the city limits of Point Pleasant, they saw the body of a large dog lying on the side of the road. A few moments later, on the way back out of town, the dog was gone. They even stopped to look for the body, knowing that they had passed it just a few minutes before. Newell Partridge immediately thought of Bandit, who was never seen again. On November 16th, a press conference was held in the county courthouse and the couples from the TNT plant sighting repeated their story. Deputy Halstead, who had known the couples all of their lives, took them very seriously. They've never been in any trouble, he told investigators, and he had no reason to doubt their stories. Many of the reporters who were present for the weird recounting felt the same way. 
The news of the strange sighting spread around the world. The press dubbed the odd flying creature Mothman after a character from the Batman TV show. The remote and abandoned TNT plant became the lair of the Mothman in his months ahead and it could not have picked a better place to hide in. The area was made up of several hundred acres of wood and large concrete domes where high explosives were stored during World War II. A network of tunnels honeycombed the area and made it possible for the creature to move about without being seen. In addition to the man-made labyrinth, the area was also comprised of the McClintock Wildlife Station, a heavily forested animal preserve filled with woods, artificial ponds, and steep ridges and hills. Much of the property was almost inaccessible, and without a doubt, Mothman could have hid for weeks or months and remained totally unseen. The only people who ever wandered there were hunters and fishermen and the local teenagers who used the rutted dirt roads of the preserve as a lover's lane. Very few homes could be found in the region, but one dwelling belonged to the Ralph Thomas family. On November 16th, they spotted a funny red light in the sky that moved and hovered above the TNT plant. It wasn't an airplane, Mrs. Marcella Bennett, a friend of the Thomas family, said, but we couldn't figure out what it was. Mrs. Bennett drove to the Thomas house a few minutes later and got out of the car with her baby. Suddenly, a figure stirred near the automobile. It seemed as though it had been lying down, she later recalled. It rose up slowly from the ground, a big gray thing, bigger than a man with terrible, glowing eyes. Mrs. Bennett was so horrified that she actually dropped her little girl. She quickly recovered, though, picked up her child, and ran to the house. The family locked everyone inside, but hysteria gripped them as the creature shuffled onto the porch and peered into the windows. The police were summoned, but the Mothman had vanished by the time the authorities had arrived. Mrs. Bennett would not recover from the incident for months and was in fact so distraught that she sought medical attention to deal with her anxieties. She was tormented by frightening dreams and later told investigators that she believed the creature had visited her own home too. She said that she could often hear a keening sound like a woman screaming near her isolated home on the edge of Point Pleasant. Many would come to believe that the sightings of Mothman as well as UFO sightings and encounters with men in black in the area were all related. For nearly a year, strange happenings continued in the area. Researchers, investigators, and monster hunters descended on the area, but none so famous as author John Keel, who has written extensively about Mothman and other unexplained anomalies. He has written for many years about UFOs, but dismisses the standard extraterrestrial theories of the mainstream UFO movement. For this reason, he has been a controversial figure for decades. Keel became the major chronicler of the Mothman case and wrote that at least 100 people personally witnessed the creature between November 1966 and November 1967. Despite being given the name of Mothman, whatever people were seeing bore no real resemblance to a moth. According to eyewitness reports, the creature stood between 5 and 7 feet tall, was wider than a man, and shuffled on human-like legs. Its eyes were set near the top of the shoulders, and it had bat-like wings that glided rather than flapped when it flew. Strangely, though, it was able to ascend straight up like a helicopter. Witnesses also describe its murky skin as being either gray or brown, and it emitted a humming sound when it flew. The Mothman was apparently incapable of speech and gave off a screeching sound. 
Mrs. Bennett stated that it sounded like a woman screaming. John Keel arrived in Point Pleasant in December of 1966 and immediately began collecting reports of Mothman sightings and even UFO reports from before the creature was seen. He compiled evidence that suggested that there was far more happening in the town than sightings of a mystery creature. Problems with televisions and phones began in the fall of 1966. Lights had been seen in the skies, particularly around the TNT plant, and cars that had passed along the nearby roads sometimes stalled without explanation. He and his fellow researchers also uncovered a number of short-lived poltergeist cases in the Ohio Valley area. Locked doors opened and closed by themselves. Strange thumps were heard inside and outside of homes, and often inexplicable voices were heard. The James Lilly family, who lived just south of the TNT plant, were so bothered by the bizarre events that they finally sold their home and moved to another neighborhood. Keel was convinced that the intense period of activity was all connected. And stranger things still took place. A reporter named Mary Heyer, who was the Point Pleasant correspondent for the Athens, Ohio newspaper, The Messenger, also wrote extensively about the local sightings. In fact, after one very active weekend, she was deluged with over 500 phone calls from people who saw strange lights in the skies. One night in January 1967, she was working late in her office in the county courthouse, and a man walked in the door. He was very short and had strange eyes that were covered with thick glasses. He also had long black hair that was cut squarely like a bowl haircut. Hire said that he spoke in a low, halting voice and he asked for directions to Welsh, West Virginia. She thought that he had some sort of speech impediment and for some reason he terrified her. He kept getting closer and closer to me, she said, and his funny eyes were staring at me almost hypnotically. Alarmed, she summoned the newspaper's circulation manager to her office, and together they spoke to the strange little man. She said that at one point in the discussion, she answered the telephone when it rang, and she noticed that the little man picked up her pen from her desk. He looked at it in amazement, as if he had never seen a pen before. Then, he grabbed the pen, laughed loudly, and ran out of the building. Several weeks later, Hire was crossing the street near her office and saw the same man on the street. He appeared to be startled when he realized that she was watching him, turned away quickly, and ran for a large black car that suddenly came around the corner. The little man climbed in, and it quickly drove away. By this time, most of the sightings had come to an end, and Mothman had faded away into the strange twilight zone from which he had come. But the story of Point Pleasant had not yet ended. At around 5 o'clock in the evening on December 15, 1967, the 700-foot bridge linking Point Pleasant to Ohio suddenly collapsed while filled with rush-hour traffic. Dozens of vehicles plunged into the dark waters of the Ohio River and 46 people were killed. Two of those were never found and the other 44 are buried together in the town cemetery of Gallipolis, Ohio. During Christmas week, a short, dark-skinned man entered the office of Mary Hire. He was dressed in a black suit with a black tie, and she said that he had looked vaguely oriental. He had high cheekbones, narrow eyes, and an unidentified accent. He was not interested in the bridge disaster, she said, but wanted to know instead about the local UFO sightings. Hire was too busy to talk with him, and she handed him a file of related press clippings instead. 
He was not interested in them and insisted on speaking with her. She finally dismissed him from her office. That same night, an identically described man visited the homes of several witnesses in the area who had reported seeing the lights in the sky. He made all of them very uneasy and uncomfortable, and while he claimed to be a reporter from Cambridge, Ohio, he inadvertently admitted that he didn't know where Columbus, Ohio was, even though the two towns are just a few minutes apart. So, who was Mothman, and what was behind the strange events in Point Pleasant? Whatever the creature may have been, it seems clear that Mothman was no hoax. There were simply too many credible witnesses who saw something. It was suggested at the time that the creature might have been a sandhill crane, which, while they are not native to the area, could have migrated south from Canada. That was one explanation anyway, although it was one that was soundly rejected by Mothman witnesses, who stated that what they saw looked nothing like a crane. But there could have been other logical explanations for some of the sightings. Even John Keel, who believed the creature was genuine, suspected that a few of the cases involved people who were spooked by recent reports and saw owls flying along deserted roads at night. Even so, Mothman remains hard to easily dismiss. The case is filled with an impressive number of multiple witness sightings by individuals that were deemed reliable, even by law enforcement officials. But if Mothman was real, and he truly was some unidentified creature that cannot be explained, what was behind the UFO sightings, the poltergeist reports, the strange lights, the strange sounds, the men in black, and, most horrifying, the collapse of the Silver Bridge. So there you go, the Mothman story. And this is a very intriguing story in that it hits every single cornerstone that you would expect something like this to hit. You've got poltergeist activity, you've got electronic phenomenon, you've got UFOs, you have got a mystery creature that defies explanation, you've got dozens and dozens and dozens of witnesses and you've got the famous men in black which lends a whole nother level of weirdness to this tale uh the thought that i have with mothman is that it's a very 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 real incident it is highly documented i cannot fathom that a that that large number of people would be hallucinating would be duped would be trying to commit fraud anything like that so there's got to be some validity to it. And it's just a matter of what is, was this a creature that was an alien? Was this a unknown creature, a cryptid that is native to that area? Was this some kind of genetic experiment, which has been postulated? There's no telling. There's a lot more questions here than there are answers, which is part of what makes it so cool. Well, guys, that's going to do it for this episode of True Paranormal, the podcast. Hey, look, I made it through without dying. Yay! Although I could die any moment now. You never know. (laughs) But I'm going to hope that I last until next week when we can record another episode for you guys. I would like to thank Mike and Steve for suggesting the topics that we covered today. You guys are awesome. And if you want to suggest topics for us or if you want to share your ghost experiences with us or anything like that feel free to contact us on facebook at true paranormal the podcast hit that message button give us a like and maybe send us an email get us your story and we'll be glad to share it on one of our future broadcasts we are here for you guys 
Alternately, if you guys listen to us on iTunes, be sure to give us a rating and a review. iTunes loves hearing from you guys, and we love hearing from you guys, too. At any rate, my name is Leo Rizzuti. Thank you for joining us this week and every week for our broadcast. And be sure to join us next week for another episode of True Paranormal, the podcast. Music.